0: You're listening to an Airwave Media podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hey, folks, Mike White here from the projection booth, bringing you a special bonus episode. Here is an interview with Ted Ramey, one of my favorite character actors, one of my fellow Detroiters. And I hope you enjoy this interview with Ted. Everybody says, you know, hey, I'm from Detroit. It's just the easiest shorthand. But where did you grow up at? I grew up in two places. I grew up
1: actually on the west side of Detroit when I was a kid at Six and Livernois, and uh, like two blocks from UAD. And then, which is weird, and then we, my family moved out to the burbs later on. Later, after I went through a bunch of different schools, including Oakland and MSU and NYU. uh, I went back to the University of
0: Detroit, so it was weird. I went to school just a couple blocks from where I I initially grew up. You were born in, what, 65? Yeah, that's right. So you were just, you were a little pipsqueak for the riots, but it was uh, still probably not too good of a scene in Detroit when you were growing up.
1: Uh, I suppose, yeah. You know, I don't really remember them. I was too young. I was too young, but it's great. You know, look, my whole life, Detroit's been on the, the, the decline, and just in the last five years, it's been on the true incline. I mean, it's gone through you know, a hundred kind of bullshit versions of, of coming back, but this is really it. Another
0: Renaissance as it were. Yeah,
1: but a real one, not just, you know, like Coleman Young bullshit Renaissance where fucking puts a building up and goes, Okay, go fuck yourselves, Detroit. You know, that's what I that's what I finished now. You know, it was it was this like a real deal, you know. And um so it's good. Yeah. And uh, you know I mean I don't really care who the who the mayor is. You know, I mean like poor us poor Detroiters have such low standards because, you know, either we've had Guys who were the worst mayors in the world who could, you know, just screwed everything up or they were thieves or they were just crooked. And I don't really care who the mayor is, as long as they're not completely lazy or a thief. So that's really low standards. It's like I'm sure Dugan's a great I don't know him all that well. You know, he's probably a fine mayor. But um, if he's not stealing and he's not not doing anything, which he
0: doesn't seem to be, he seems to be at least trying, you know, then I got to give him credit, you know. Yeah, the best thing is he's kind of staying out of the news, so it's not like a Kwame Kilpatrick situation. Right, he's, he's not some uh, you know high-rolling dude or whatever, you know. So tell me about your relationship with movies when you were a kid. What, were you always a movie fan? Yeah, I was always a movie fan.
1: I loved movies. There were two things that I could escape to as a kid because I was bullied frequently in high school. And uh, those two things were books and movies, and specifically sci-fi books – for the most part, and horror and thriller movies on the movie end. So uh, I escaped to both of those, and I was a voracious reader and uh, saw movies nonstop. And I had my mother to thank for those two things. Uh, she really my, – my, both my parents encouraged me to read tremendously, but it was my mother who loved movies so much. Uh, sometimes, you know, when I was in – elementary and junior high school even high school she'd say hey you know look there's this great movie on tv we should we should skip school today and we're going to watch this movie but it wasn't like a skip day so much as it was homework you know it wasn't just a day to hang out she wouldn't let me stay home from school to screw around those days were look at this director's work look at this actor he did this movie that movie that movie Look at the tension they're building here. Isn't that exciting? So it was really, you know, she she started off as an actress, my mother. Never continued with that end of her career, but... In the end, she became a very successful uh, Detroit businesswoman. She owned and operated a chain of women's lingerie stores. There were four of them at one point. But yeah, she, she really got me into that. I have her to thank. So that that's, that's, what, that's how I got started. Who were some of your favorite authors? I, you know, some of the classic guys, probably like Ramsey Campbell. I used to love to read Ramsey Campbell a lot. I used to love to read Stephen King. You know, he was huge even then. You know, he was, he's been huge for 45 years, you know. I also love the guys who could write thrillers well. I would grab... You know, just because I love The Twilight Zone so much, I would frequently grab Rod Serling's uh, story collections. You know, he was a really great short story writer, too. Most people didn't know that. But he could really write well. In fact, of course, he started writing radio dramas and moved on to television, you know, which is so that's not surprising. Sci-fi-wise, uh, you know, I like the classic guys, too. Clark and Asimov I would read a great deal of. Um, Robert A. Heinlein, guys like that. You know, they they were really my escape. And And when I... When I saw those movies, incidentally, on, on television in those days, you know, because there was pre-cable days, you know, so like if you caught a movie on TV, it was a really big deal, cut up or not. I would be so wildly impressed with the character actors. I, I, I really identified with them. Um, they seemed like crazy outsiders to me. You know, a lot of actors identify with the leading man because they like the toughness and the wiliness of them. And it appeals to a lot of people on that and understandably so. But for some reason, I always love the character actors. So when I would watch, say, old Warner Brothers movies, I would love to focus on guys like E.G. Robinson and Peter Lorre. And I thought to myself, Jesus, God, those guys can do stuff. And get away with stuff and be so big and so broad but so genuine at the same time. That is, I think, why I gravitated towards comedy and also mostly towards gravitating towards being a character actor and being an outsider. You know, I never really wanted to be a leading man, and I did it a couple times, and I found it really unsatisfying and, and quite boring, frankly.
0: Well, you were a pretty great leading man though. I, I was just rewatched Lunatic's a love story and you're fantastic. In oh, that.
1: thank you, Mike. That's very kind of you. I I appreciate that. That that particular movie was uh was very good. Although if you look at that part, it's only something that a, an independent director and writer with really great vision like Josh Becker could pull off, which is you write a main character which is really not a leading man, but a character character. Like a character actor. That guy is you know he's an agoraphobic and a, a shut in, and so and, and the movie is rather avant garde and its style and stuff. So I think it it requires a, a, that kind of an actor, and I was very very grateful to fill that. But that wasn't written really written for a traditional you know young lady man.
0: Tell me about meeting like uh, like a Josh Becker or a Scott Spiegel, uh, uh, Robert Taper. How old were you when you were meeting these guys? Well, I've known Josh since I was a little kid. I've known Josh since since forever. You know, I remember Josh when I was maybe
1: 10 or 9 years old. He lived around, he lived around the block from us. And Josh became a filmmaker in his own right, you know. Um, Scott, I knew through my brother, Sam. Uh, he was good friends with him, so I I, I met him that way. Uh, Rob Tappert, I met him. He was my oldest old, brother's, Ivan, Ivan's roommate at Michigan State. And when I would go up to visit my brothers up there when they were going to school, MSU... Uh, Rob was just hanging around and I I, I knew him then. So I, I remember him from, you know, probably like whatever, 19, probably met him in 77 or something when
0: I was just like 10, you know, so around 11 or something like that. Yeah, not a long time. How did you get recruited into some of those early movies like It's Murder? I was just a little kid hanging around.
1: That's all. It's just, you know, when you're that when you're just a kid making movies, you just grab whoever's around. And so I would, you know, I, I thought that, that didn't really start me in an acting career so much. It was just fun to do. Um, I don't think I really started thinking about acting seriously until I was about 17 after I'd had a series of crappy jobs. You know, I, I and, and realized like I was a golf caddy. I was a bus boy at this dump restaurant on Second Avenue downtown. And uh, it, those were really rough jobs, and I hated them. You know, and they were crappy jobs. I was a production assistant for a couple shoots and stuff. And then when I started acting, I said, "Oh man, this is much easier than doing those jobs. This is incredibly, this is incredibly different and easier, and and it pays too." So, um, so I got acting into acting a little obliquely because most people get into acting because they have this burning desire to act, but I conversely did it because it was easier than bussing
0: tables and then wound up liking it a lot later and didn't want to leave it, you know? So it was, it was strange. So what would you consider your first big acting role then? When, when would you say like, now I'm an actor? I, I couldn't answer that. I, I don't know the answer to that question. I can, I can tell you, I mean
1: like on a personal level, you know, when I felt like an actor, I, I think just probably the first time I got in front of a, a actual paying job in front of a camera, which was, I'm pretty sure it was one of my first industrial films I did for Chevy, probably like in 1983 or 84. Right around then, I think I probably felt like a real actor. But, um, I, you know, in my heart, I, you know, probably much later, <laughs> you know, probably much later when I thought to myself, um, oh, I boy, this is some serious stuff. You know, like uh, probably years later, like when I was doing Sequest, you know, for for NBC, I thought, well, yeah, here I am with Roy Scheider. Holy shit. This is a big deal. You know, this is a Steven Spielberg deal so i you know that's when i guess i felt like a big shot i suppose but you know um i this this whole business that was so ephemeral and it's so will of the wisp in terms of when you'll be working how much you'll be working and who you'll be working with that i look at every job as an incredible fucking lucky break and um which it is and i think it is for most actors they may not want to admit that but it happens to be true you know, this This business can be yanked away from you. You can, you know, look, all you have to do to see that it, that particular truth plays out at every level in this business is to look out when they're shooting the Oscars on television, you know, on ABC or wherever they happen to broadcast it. And they'll show a wide shot, mediums, close ups of the actors that, and the audiences. They're listening to their compatriots give their speeches, you know, and you can see guys like if you look. Not too closely. You can just see it pretty plainly. Guys like Matt Damon and um, Jennifer Lawrence and all these wonderful big actors, you can see the terror on their faces. They're absolutely mortified. And I don't, they're, not, they're not nervous so much about winning as they are about losing their place. And it's, it's scary. You know, it's not up to them for the most part, whether the, an audience likes them or doesn't like them. You didn't used to see that so much, really, I think, back in the studio days. If you look out in the audience and, you know, when, when it was filmed, you know back in the days when the studios had contracts since whenever till about the uh, 60s and 70s you know when they were broken up you can see if you look in the Oscar faces you can see that they're calm as uh, Hindu cows they're not worried they they've got their contracts you know and i'm i'm not necessarily longing for those days or anything but this is a, this is this business is a tenuous one at best and so um, i'm really aware all the time of of how lucky i am like right now doing Ash for Civil Dead i'm very grateful I'm not, uh, you know, saying, oh yeah, you know, this should always, this is the way it should always be, um, and I am lucky, and uh, so yeah,
0: that, that's how I feel about it. What was your first experience like going out to Los Angeles, and, and when was that?
1: I first went out to L.A. in I think it was '87 or '88. I can't remember. It was definitely summertime, which was a dumb time to drive from Detroit to L.A. You know the desert was like 110 degrees or something. I thought, what the hell am I getting myself into? I'd never seen a cactus in my life, except like on Bugs Bunny Roadrunner cartoons. So it was, it was pretty wild. I loaded up my car and I got, you know, I left home, you know, and I, and I went out there and I slept on couches for, for weeks. And that was a rough time too, because at that point my parents had a, rather successful business in detroit and they offered it to me they said if you don't want to go out to california you can stay here and run this business and it seemed like a i was really deciding between the two because it was a good business and so and it was a fashion business and i always liked the fashion industry so it was rough and but i chose acting you know uh, because i thought it'd be maybe more fun that's the only reason I, i i picked it and um and it wound up being a blast but not at first at first it was some kind of hell And I caught a break because a friend of mine who was a a producer who I'd worked with in Detroit knew this DP, and the DP was friends with Wes Craven. So without a manager, without an agent, she hooked me up with a casting director of this Wes Craven movie, and uh, I'll never forget it. I was sleeping on my buddy's couch, and the casting director comes in this freaking red convertible, and I thought, holy shit, is this what California is? This is unbelievable! Like, does everyone drive red convertibles? In fact, it, no, they don't. But it was sort of my first experience with with the business, and I and I never forgot that. And we drove along the one on one freeway on the way to the office, and I felt very exhilarated. It was really exciting. Anyway, went in, and I read, Wes was there, and I and I read for him. It was shocker, in the movie shocker. He liked me right away and cast me, and I liked him right away too. So that was my first experience. I was in a nutshell, that's what it was. But there were plenty of times when I was sitting down, and you know. People's floors and couches eating ramen noodles, you know, with CNN in the background, going, "What the hell did I get myself into here?"
0: You've played a lot of, um, I would say, technicians over the years. Like whenever there were nerdy roles, you were kind of the go-to guy. Yeah, I played those for years. What was that like for you? It was great. Um, I enjoyed that
1: those those parts very much. They were. Uh, I always personally loved computers. You know, I was always into them. I was a very shy guy. I still am. The computers were like for a lot of kids today. They were. Really an outlet, although now, cool kids, of course, for the last 10, 15 years, it's okay for them to like computers, too. But in those days, man, you were just a nerd if you liked computers. You know, back in, you know, like the 80s, you were, you were just a geek. This is all there was to it, and teased for it. So, but when I got into uh, doing serious acting roles, I took to that like a duck to water, you know. I was used to sitting in front of it. So I think on those auditions, I looked authentic. You know because I had been hunched over those damn things for years I was a, a kid and now here I was you know doing these parts and for the a lot of my fans don't know that for the first 10 15 years of my career I didn't do comedy no I didn't do comedy at all no they were all serious parts uh, they were um there were I mean there was some horror stuff but the horror stuff I did was not comedy horror it was just horror yeah did a ton of that including you know those I did. Yeah, I played those those computer guys on two Tom Clancy movies. I was like a nerd. And in that first movie, I did a couple other pictures and then culminating in three years of Sequest DSV where I was another computer nerd, you know. So uh, it was it was a great, great part of my career. And finally, you know, I got to be like 30. And then when you're 30, you can't really be a computer hacker. You're just, you know. You're just kind of a loser at thirty, if you're just computer hacking or or a criminal, uh, one or the other. So you're not like a kid trying to do good things. You're just like, whoa, I guess that didn't really work. So I had to change my career. I'm uh, changed my rather sorry. I had to change my mo as an actor, you know. But but uh, you, it's something that guys do once or twice in their lives. Actors, you know, uh, women have to do it only once. But it had better work for women. Women have a much harder row to hoe than men do. For example, I went from playing. These young computer hackers to uh, doing comedy parts when I was 30, you know, just just raw comedy, just crazy comedy or comedy, serious stuff. And that's good. And now that I'm 50, now I can now I'm sort of doing like another. There's another phase to my acting career. Now I'm sort of playing dads and stuff like that. So and, you know, punk losers again, which is hilarious. But um, women only have one chance. When women typically, I mean, they might have two if they're very, very famous, but typically, women when they get to be about uh, thirty-five, you gotta change up or or die because those guys don't don't have a chance in health. They don't because no one wants them as an ingenue anymore.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about the New Love Story as far as where did you guys end up shooting that? Was that shot in L.A.? No, we didn't shoot
1: anything in L.A. Believe it or not, that movie was shot entirely on location in Pontiac, Michigan. At that time, there was uh, I think it's probably still there. There was an I think they might have turned it into something else. there was an abandoned high school there, you know off of woodward somewhere and um, this was years before you know uh raleigh studios uh, east was was built but uh, we shot it there and we used the gym and built uh hank's ap- apartment set, which was supposed to take place in l a there for some of the downtown l a stuff we used uh parts of downtown Pontiac, you know which was Believe it or not, you know, even more desolate in those days than Detroit was in those days. So there was nobody around. Uh, So we was really like a whole set to ourselves. It was it was great. It was nice to be able to shoot shoot in Detroit. We we all uh, we all loved it. And that had the wonderful Deborah Foreman in it, too. And she was uh, she was great. She was she was um, really a a sparkly, uh, terrific actor.
0: It almost feels like a um, almost like a Tom Noonan play at times as far as you two kind of falling in love, but really not even being on screen together that often
1: yeah what a funny uh what an interesting uh, analogy that is it was that's all josh becker i you know he's he's kind of a you know he's one of these guys that has only made these uh in his film career he's only made these indie pictures and he's got like five or six of them you know that's uh, maybe the most uh prominent one but all his movies are very auditory based you know he's one of these directors who likes the words you know he's a a word-based uh kind of writer as opposed to an action writer. And so, yeah, it's a very interesting story. Uh, And I don't know why that movie gets so much traction. It's um, become kind of a cult favorite, and um, I get asked about it all the time, and it's such an old movie now. My goodness, it's about 30 years old, you know. But um, there's something about it resonates with people. I don't know what it is. What was it like
0: uh, working on Twin Peaks?
1: Twin Peaks was great. I remember the audition really well for that one. I remember um, I had just come from a commercial audition where I was... I was playing a dad, and so I had a tweed coat, coat patches, khaki pants like that. And um, sorry, not a dad. I was I was a teacher. I was playing a teacher, like a young teacher. You know, I was like I think when I read for that, I was like twenty one or something, twenty two. So I was playing like a young teacher, and so I the part was for a punk rock kid named Rusty, who was supposed to have like a mohawk and tattoos and nose rings. And I didn't obviously have any of that stuff. So I told my agent, I I don't think I can go in for this because it's not me. And I'm definitely not now me in this costume I'm wearing now. They went, no, no, go ahead. So I went in there and I walked in the door and there were 20, 30 kids there. All of them were real punk kids. Like they had real mohawks and real tattoos. And uh, they looked really, really badass. And I thought, well, fuck this. This is never going to work. So I just about turned around. The casting director saw me and said, hey, Ted, uh, come on in. We're ready for you. I went, oh, man, okay. So I was, uh, not prepared. I read thinking there's no way I was going to get that part, not in a thousand million years, but I did. And that was it. And that was on two episodes. You know, there were, there were small parts, but it was, oh man, I had a great time and it was great to meet uh, David Lynch. He was,
0: he was awesome. He's just like, uh, someone's crazy uncle. I always appreciate when you just kind of happen upon screen. Like, one of my favorites for you is uh, your appearance in Hard Target.
1: Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of movies I've forgotten about. And I'll tell you, you know, you know, there's a, there's a funny thing. I was telling a, a friend of mine the other day, and she couldn't believe when I told her this, but um, she's an actor too. I was mentioning that I, I've only seen about 60% of everything I've ever been in. I haven't seen a lot of movies that I've done. Most TV shows I've done, I have not watched them. Uh, there's many uh, episodes of Xena, I have not seen, for example, and um, some sequels I have not yet seen. Um, and that isn't because I don't like the shows. I, I, I was very proud of them, I still am. But once I sort of get it right on set and I feel it's, you know, the timing's right and stuff like that, then it's up to the directors and producers and editors and post production designers to, you know, do their magic on it. And uh, there's nothing I can do. Um, and to, to watch it and maybe either cheer for myself or lament over how badly it was cut or lament over my, you know, performances is, is sort of a waste of time. You know, there's no point to it unless a friend is over and they're interested to see what you do. And in which case those are the ones I watch, you know, some people, they want to sit with you and stuff and that's cool. But yeah, that's just, I haven't really watched them. I don't, I don't know how they turned out, but they tell me they were, they're good. <laughs> there's just too many books and movies to to see in this world to do stuff like that. And, but I have not seen hard target. Yeah, I hadn't seen it, and um, I know uh, Rob did a terrific job producing it. I remember that, and John Wu. Uh, excuse me, was that John Wu?
0: No, that was John Wu. Yeah, John Wu. Yeah, he was um, a, swell, a really, uh, really a fascinating guy. I asked you about when the first time was when you went to LA. I'm curious, what was it like the first time you went to New Zealand? It absolutely blew my mind. I, I'd never
1: been anywhere to the uh, South Pacific, not, not anywhere, not even islands or or. Uh, Australia, no, nowhere. So I went down there thinking, well, like most Americans, you don't, know, you don't know. I mean, New Zealand looks quite small on a map. It looks tiny, you know, because it's, it's next to this gigantic landmass of uh, Australia. But that map you usually see is a Mercurator's map, which, it, which it's a little skewed. It's quite a large country, actually. Uh, it's two islands, but um, I thought I it was large. And, um, I, and in those days, the crews were excellent. And they still are. I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a mind-blowing experience, you know? I was just on the other side of the world. And when I was done with that part, which was raw comedy, that was the first time I was ever completely immersed in television comedy because I had just gotten off three seasons of uh, sequence where I was like very, very, very serious. And so it was, kind of, it was kind of crazy. And there I was in a new crazy country with new weird money, it's everything. The food's a little strange, and the, they talk a little funny t- to us, to our ears. But I found the whole thing exhilarating and, and amazing. And uh, in those days, I was surfing a great deal, so I would go and I would surf. Believe it or not, yes, fans, you may not know that about me, but I do surf now. I'd probably fucking break my skull open on a rock, but in those days, I was uh, I would surf quite a bit, so I enjoyed it.
0: From what I understand, when you're shooting Ash versus Evil Dead, you're shooting it down there, and they're basically recreating a uh, Michigan Town. St- that's right. God, that's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy.
1: You know, I mean, look, Mike, you and I are both from Michigan. Nobody gets fooled. We don't get fooled about Michigan Towns. But I tell you what, dude, I got fooled. Like, there was a few times hanging around these sets, and I'm telling you, they recreated whole streets. They had to because you can't shoot in any small New Zealand town. Because it looks very much like, of course, New Zealand doesn't look anything like America. Uh, you can't fool Americans in terms of that stuff. You know what I mean? I mean, it looks, I suppose, to our eyes, more British. If I could, you know, give a, give a comparison. So they re- had to rebuild America on sound stages. So they built these giant two-block sets with every store. And record stores with American records in it and coffee shops with American coffee signs. They have to import cars because the cars drive on the wrong side. The steering wheel's on the wrong side. Uh, the models are different. So everything has to be imported These, in, as far as the street signage has to be changed. The movie posters. I mean, everything. You know, they had to bring in every last damn thing. And because it's Michigan, of course, they bring in, you know, like Fago Pop bottles and Fago Pop machines. They've got better made chips. You know, they have uh, Sanders. They've got Everything we all grew up with, you know, they've got all the good shit. So it's, it's crazy. But once in a while on set, I look around and like, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are we in Ferndale or are we in Auckland, New Zealand? Like you, you blows your mind when you're a little tired. So it's pretty cool. They do an amazing job. Those guys are uh, some of the most talented uh, set designers and crew I've, I've
0: ever worked with. Now, I didn't see last week's episode because I was out of town. Are you still alive? You're just going to have to watch next week to find out. Because I hear that they just got picked up for a third season. So I was curious if you're coming back. Do
1: I come back? You're going to have to find out. You're going to have to get the damn Stars app, Mike, like everyone else. Just because you're doing this interview, just because you're a Detroiter, don't mean I got no sway with Stars. And I don't. And there's another funny thing, too. Like, people think that, that because, you know, like we're we're in the show and stuff, they're like, oh, you guys get all these like, Stars perks you must get, you know, free, you know. Subscriptions for you and all your friends. No, no pay for. I got to pay for my star subscription like everybody else. If I want to see that show, I got to pay for it. But this is one of the few shows that I am watching every episode. I'm so curious because I'm so fascinated. First of all, I I haven't been this proud of a show in a while, but also um, I think it's an exceptionally done show and it's so intricate. And the balance between comedy and horror is is so delicate that I'm fascinated to see how it turned out. So this one, I am bated breath every episode I watch. Yeah, it is
0: fantastic. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. I've got one last question for you. And you may not be able to answer this, but I, I still am going to ask it anyway. And I'm hoping you can kind of pull the curtain aside a little bit. How many versions of that Delta 88 have there been?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure I'm the guy to answer that. I would say uh, at least a dozen uh, cars over the years uh, were the Delta 88. And those were, you know, reconditioned and reformatted. They were crushed, smashed, you know, trash thrown on the ground, you know, dumped from dumpsters high in the air, all kinds of stuff. But the original Delta 88 V8 is still around. That original one is still here. With the same seats, same steering wheel, same engine, it's all still it's all still around. Yeah. Part of the reason it's still around is that, you know, most of its life it was out of Detroit and out of that, you know, Detroit salted road weather. I mean, that's what killed those cars. You know, it's hilarious that out in California there's more vintage cars than anywhere else, but it's not because it's sunny Cal it's not because it's Californians care any more than we do about vintage cars. I think we care more about them than people here in LA do,
0: but they just don't salt their roads. Obviously, it never snows here, so there's nothing to wipe them out. Ted Ramey, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been a real pleasure. Oh, my, me too. Thanks,
1: Mike. And a big fan of you and a big fan of your podcast. And thank you for keeping film film theory and film fans all together in one place. There are very few people like you out there. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people that claim, I think, to – you know, be film critics and film theoreticians. But I think most of them are half-assed postgraduate students with nothing else to do because they can't get a freaking job. But you know your shit. And uh, I appreciate it very much. I think a lot of us film fans like myself do, too.
0: Well, thanks. Hey, next time you're in Detroit, let me know and I'll buy you a beer.
1: That's good because it won't be too long. So, so too bad for you, sucker, because I'll be there soon. All right. Yeah, no problem. OK, thanks, Mike. Thanks for putting me on your show.